Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Atlanta Film Chat Podcast, Episode 3. This week we have Raymond Carr, owner of Atlanta-based Ninja Puppet Productions. You may know that the puppet industry is huge here, and people like Raymond are doing some amazing stuff with the art form. And you've probably seen some of his work in movies like VHS or TV shows like Lazy Town, and you didn't even know it. Raymond is also an accomplished writer and director who has lots of ideas and thoughts about the film industry in Atlanta and what kind of an environment newbies should seek out to better improve their game. Uh, so all current and future filmmakers, puppeteers, and other artists should listen up. And remember, if you like the show, make sure to rate and review it on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at ATL Film Chat. Okay, on to episode three with Raymond Carr. We've got uh, episode three upon us already. How time has flown. Uh, today we have Raymond Carr. Welcome, welcome everybody. Raymond. Everybody, it's, welcome. It's entirely not necessary. Thank you, though. So, uh, so how's it going today? Oh, man. It's going dope. <laughs> going dope. I'm going through the dope. I know I'm you're feeling dope. the pressures of podcasts, but... Yeah, I know. Just is, be yourself. No, be this yourself. is... I don't know what that is anymore. <laughs> Would it help if I did it? We're live today on a podcast. You know, let him film chat. If I talk um, like that, would it no, help? no, that's not helping. Okay. Uh, so to start out, Jim Henson walks up, and you get to tell him one thing, and you get to ask him one thing. What do you tell him, and what do you ask? Um, <laughs> I thought you were dead. Um, <laughs> I get to tell him that... Um, you know, good job. Thanks. <laughs> keep keep up the good work. Um. Oh, and take care of that cold. Uh, that's awful. <laughs> that would have been good advice. That's awful. <laughs> Let's not do that. Uh, and I get to ask him. Uh, I get to ask him about his daily schedule, his work habits. I would be really interested in seeing his work and writing habits and things of that nature. The habits of successful people. I'm interested in that. Sure, absolutely. Or even people, the habits of people that inspire other people. That too. So, to I guess the more important part is uh, for those listening is who is Raymond Carr? Wow, shit just got deep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, like on a basic level, like, like, I don't like, mean, I don't mean spiritually. <clears throat> I mean, like, why are we talking? They'll have read. They'll have read. You don't know. I don't have read the description, but we really want to know. I legitimately what, don't know why you're talking to me. What, uh, is, what does Raymond Carr mean to you? <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, hi, my name is Raymond Carr. Um, I am the owner and operator of a production company called Ninja Puppet Productions. We are a multimedia production company that specializes in creature effects and uh, avant-garde uh, movie uh, stuff. As well as some more theatrical stuff, but we're not really talking about that because this is a movie podcast. Um, yeah, so we produce uh, commercial work um, as well as uh, what we define as uh, fine art work, which is kind of our more avant-garde stuff. But we also produce commercial work, which is more, you know, uh, popular and 
um, selling stuff kind of a thing. So, yeah, that's Ninja Puppet Productions. You also might have seen some of his work on shows like Lazy Town, and if you saw the stage show of Walking with Dinosaurs, you you saw his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. what what was it like being in Iceland, right, for Lazy Town? Yeah. What was it like, basically just flying out of the country to go work on a crazy show? Well, first off, what age were you when you went to Iceland? Uh, I was twenty two. Um, about a decade ago, so I'm older now. Um, yeah, no, Lazy Town was my first actual professional produ- production job, um, and I really didn't know what the hell I was getting myself into, and I also didn't know how good I actually had it, because <laughs> it was pretty damn sweet. Um, but yeah, I, I got a, they were looking for puppeteers and, um, I submitted my resume and my reel, which back then, this was 10 years ago, I think I just submitted like a VHS or a DVD of my reel. I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> um, and they had me and I was on a very, I was like an assistant, so very low level entry, but uh, still they were very, very good to me. Um, it was a, it was a stressful job uh, because the production company was very unorganized and they hadn't really done anything like this before. Nick Jr. kind of bought these episodes from them and gave them kind of just like threw money and people at them and tried to get them to make this thing um and it had its ups and downs but all in all it was an amazing experience i was only supposed to be out there for two months ended up staying for a year because that's how long the production dragged out but uh yeah so so 22 is pretty young so what school background did you have before this um, I went to the Georgia State's universities, um, where I, uh, majored in theater when they still did that, and then they stopped doing theater, and I also, uh, kind of was veering towards film anyway, and I started in the film, and then I, um, got into, got, started working on, uh, Lazy Town, and promptly dropped out. Hmm. So, I am a failure at college. <laughs> uh, how much do you think that... Film ha- going to film school has influenced your career. How much do you think that you learned from it and have been able to take from it? Um, I, I don't want to be like one of those guys who's like, oh, fuck fun. I can say fuck on this podcast. Yes, oh, you yeah. Can. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be one of those people that are just like, ah, oh, fuck film school. Because, like, you can get, like, stuff out of it. I think it is for some people, and I think that uh, some people. Um, can get a lot out of it, and I think that Georgia State has a great film program, um, but ultimately, for me, as somebody who is an industry professional, it was really just about um, getting out there and doing stuff, and the biggest resource at State was the di- Digital Aquarium, which is where you could rent um, equipment and also use their editing suites and all that kind of stuff, and that was a huge... Um, asset to me when I was making my first uh, shorts. So, yeah, I think it did, you know, uh, but uh, I took, I also took a lot of like academic classes, um, like theory and genre and all that kind of stuff. And it was cool to learn about um, that kind of stuff. And that was able to help me articulate some things because Lord knows I wouldn't have read those fucking books on my own time. Um, But for the most part, the nuts and bolts of how to make a film were things that I learned at, like, places like dailies and, you know, stuff like that. So, you get back from Lazy Town. Uh, What is immediately next after that for you? Immediately next? Immediately next was, um, I was living living with my parents at the time, and I watched um, all seven seasons of Star Trek Next (laughs) Generation, Deep Space Nine. Nice. That was because I discovered that they were on Spike TV and they were playing like two or three episodes a day. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, yes. So I, this was before, you know, the, the, the Netflix that the kids have right. these days. So I was pretty stoked about that. Um, so I got that out of the way pretty quickly. Um, and then I didn't really know how to do anything. Um, and I, you know, Lazy Town was te- very technologically advanced for the time. It was the first show on television to use HD cameras, like full HD cameras. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's what they claim. I don't know if that's actually true, oh, well. but, you know. Lovely. Um, it was, you know, most of it was um, th- 
real-time 3D rendered backgrounds on um, giant green screens where you could actually see the, like, you're looking at a monitor and you're seeing the 3D background behind you and then, right. you know, moving a lamppost or a building from behind your head because it looks weird and they can just change the composition of the whole set huh. um, in real time. So it came from, like, all that to back to me with very little access to things. Um so it, it, it really wasn't until I uh, started working at Push Push Theater and with the Dailies Project that I started to find out what my filmmaking style was. Mm-hmm. So where is Walking with Dinosaurs and all of this? Uh, so I came back into Atlanta um, and was making movies and working in the industry. Um, discovered PA, discovered that I hated that, um, and then started doing art department stuff on a entry-level stuff, um, and then I was working at the Center for Puppetry Arts um, in a show, and a producer told me about these auditions for, and Walking with Dinosaurs, for those of you who don't know, is a show that's called uh, Walking with Dinosaurs, and <laughs> it's a life-size animatronic arena spectacular. It's very specific, um, uh, and it's basically... 17 life-size dinosaurs that are all based on the fossils with this. Each of the dinosaurs costs about a million bucks to operate. And they are operated with three different performers. And they we play places like the Phillips Arena and Madison Square Garden and Staples Center and all that kind of jazz. Um, so if you you can, you know, tab over it, over, over to another um, screen and you Google that real quick and YouTube a video <laughs> because you can't really appreciate it until you see them in action. Unless you're driving, then wait till you get to the office. No, no, do it. It's worth it. It's it's worth the risk to watch it right now while you're driving. Um, So, okay, so so backing up a little bit, so you mentioned dailies. Can, Mm -hmm. um, and I know that dailies was a big part of a lot of our peers' beginnings in the film industry in Atlanta as far as inspiration and learning to work with others and whatnot. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about what dailies is? Ye old dailies. Um, dailies Atlanta was a program um, through Push Push Theater um, Indicator, which was uh, a workshop theater. So they were they didn't hold auditions; they just workshopped pieces. So if you had a script, you would they, the artistic director would say, "We're going to have workshops for this," and anybody could show up, and they would just read through the script and talk about it and talk about it, and they would do this for months, and then they would cast out of that workshop, which was you know because they believed in the, you know auditions are bullshit, which is true. It's like any actor knows that you you can't really see what this person is capable in this cattle call. And your director knows that too, but you kind of have to do it just because. And that was what was great about Push uh, Push was they really embraced the idea of workshopping a piece. Um, and so they had this uh, subwing called Dailies, which was uh, emphasized on film. And we would uh, meet once a month. And we would screen a short film, talk about it, um, and then we would, you know, meet and greet and hang out and whatever. And then there was also what we called our quarterly challenges, which was um, short films that we would do that were inspired by whatever uh, challenge was up for that quarter. So uh, there were things like we did everything from like dogma films to um, we did a, uh, a fight scene um, film series. Uh, we did something... That was a reaction to dogma, which is, you know, dogma is stripped down lighting and all these uh, spectacle elements. And so the reaction to that was something called Katma, uh, which Nick Hilton made, which is um, basically utilizing the spectacle as a driving force within the narrative, which was a great experience. Um, I did a piece called Fairy Tales, which it was, you know, kind of defined what a fairy tale was and had certain rules within that. And people went off and made these. Um, so we really did pump out a lot of work. And our motto was, it's a safe place to fail, um, which is great. Um, so after three months, and everybody would share resources, cameras, and whatever. I made four short films and didn't own any equipment, um, and to various degrees of quality. Um, some of them I, I still stand by. Uh, and it was just a really great community of people um, who really believed in each other. And uh, it, I was on the board for a year, along with some other folks, um, Dailies is also where um, The Signal was born out of, for those of you oh, who, yeah. who know that. Um, the Signal was an exquisite corpse project where somebody gets the short film and then passes it on to somebody else, and then they continue the story and continue the story, um, and then it 
basically turn into the signal. So um, it's more complicated than that with, with politics and all that kind of sure. other shit. But yeah, that's the basic idea. But it definitely helps spawn p- the careers of people like mm-hmm. Jacob Gentry and uh, Dan Bush and David Bruckner mm-hmm. um, and Raymond Carr and many of our other friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is one thing that last week when we were talking to Charles Judson, he was talking about is there used to exist this kind of support system for creativity between dailies. And then after that, there was an incarnation of studio outposts and he, his main complaint was that it doesn't really exist anymore, that we're all kind of trying to beat each other down as opposed to helping each other create better things. And I know that you've been a really big uh, champion in the Atlanta film community as far as getting people into it and telling them that they need to just go out and make things and, what do you think uh, is the best avenue for people right now in the Atlanta film community as far as making things? Um, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, I, I think that all of those things that we did... Um, and I sound so old talking about these things because they were only like four or five years ago. Um, Studio Outpost was born out of dailies, which was basically once dailies kind of fizzled out, um, it was a group of us that wanted to continue and kind of had our own studio. And, uh, we basically would, um, yeah, just found a space and started making stuff. Um, and we made several things. I made some music videos and some shorts and, um, Dave went on to made uh, Amateur Night, which was a part of VHS series and all these sorts of things. Um, so, like, today, I think one of the best resources, and what I tell people is, uh, you know, get involved with the Atlanta Film Festival, because they've really stepped up their game as far as, like, doing consistent uh, events, which is fantastic, in my opinion. Um, there's another, there's a couple of smaller groups, like, Wonder Root is still doing stuff. Uh, there's a group called Yollywood, which is fairly new, that they are... Um, doing stuff too. Uh, they mostly do meet and greet stuff, but like, I want somebody to like step up and put together another dailies project. Cause it's, uh, I don't, yeah, it's, it's, it was such a great resource for everybody. Um, at the end of the day, I think the best resource you have is just finding your core group of people. Um, and you know, who are your partners in the industry and how do you make those people, how do you keep those people relevant in your life, you know? If you want to mm-hmm. do stuff, like, you got to keep the conversation going and, like, it's work because everybody's working and doing stuff. But, like, keep the conversation going and there's always going to be new ideas for shit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know what I would be doing right now if I didn't know people like Molly or our friend Dustin who, you know, I... I send stuff to them and they read it, <laughs> which yeah. which is a big thing. If I send them a script and I know they're gonna they're gonna actually check it out, you know you you don't really if you don't have that core group of friends like you said mm-hmm. that you can fail with, that you, they can be like, well, this is really terrible, mm-hmm. but I can see what you're going for, and you know, or they pitch an idea and I come up with something like that. Um, I, yeah, I think it's really important to to have that that freedom to try stuff. Um, in, in last, uh, last episode, Charles was even talking about just having new stories to tell where he thinks Atlanta's going wrong is, um, they're, they're not, they're telling the same stories. Like, you, mm-hmm. you know, and as a screener for the Atlanta Film Festival, we get a lot of the same movies over and over as telling the same stories. Uh, do you see that? Do you, do you think there's a, a creative element in Atlanta or are we, or is there too much spinning wheels and people aren't, aren't trying to fail enough? Um, well, uh, full disclosure, I kind of hate short films. Um, <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of excruciating, um, sometimes. <laughs> and that's what I did with dailies, is what I, my job was to, um, screen short films and then select the ones to screen for the, uh, quarterly meetings. Um, 
so uh, I can't really speak to like how Atlanta's creativity. I, I will say that short films generally um, try and mimic a specific genre or trope or concept that they have uh, seen or love. You know, your your zombies, your action, your sci-fi, what have you. Your you know, and it's a lot of you know, sixteen-year-old kids making stuff for people with the minds of 16-year-old kids uh, trying to make their, you know, trying to remake the Matrix, and that's fine. Um, I think, ultimately, uh, the stories that we come up with are going to have to be... There's always going to be a lot of people that are just doing the thing, you know, just, like, regurgitating whatever they think is interesting. Yeah. And, then, and then there's always going to be a handful of people who are making really unique stuff. And that's, not everybody can make really unique stuff. Otherwise, nobody would shine through, you know? So there's always going to be people who are making hack cliches, and then there's always going to be people who are really pushing the envelope. Um, And it just is up to you as an artist to try and push the envelope in yourself. And um, whether or not that's indicative of something within Atlanta, I mean, I would say that that's probably more indicative of something of in uh, amateur or new short film um, producers. Like, my films were always really complicated and had, like, a hint of something relatively interesting, but just had no idea how to get to that. Like, in hindsight, I can articulate so many of my past short films and, like, I love the idea behind them, but I hate, I would not, never show anybody like half of the shit right. that I made. But they're an important part of your journey. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. As a story right, right, yeah. And I think that has to do with, like, uh, just being able to articulate an idea. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's less about, like, bad ideas, which there are plenty of people with bad ideas um, who make bad films, but I think that there's, it's also about your ability to articulate a good idea. There's plenty of people with good ideas that just can't articulate it on film. Right, um, which has some to do with people's ability to take negative feedback. Sure, yeah. A lot of people I know don't workshop their scripts mm-hmm. enough before mm-hmm. they ever hit the screen, which is a big problem. I've had, you know, I've been approached to production design projects that I was like, hey, so could I give you some notes about it? And, you know, <laughs> like nine times out of ten, they're not interested in those notes at all. Sure. And it's not a good place to ever be as a filmmaker, to not be able to hear the negative stuff just as much as the positive stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest uh, thing for any artist to achieve is a level of objectivity. If you are able to objectively look at your work and say, good, bad, I think that that is... And this is something that you are constantly chasing. Objectivity is something you are constantly chasing. Because uh, you're, you, even the most self-deprecating person, if you are actively doing something, you're still going to have a certain affinity for you, what you are doing. You're still going to love what you're doing to a certain extent. Or even if you're super self-deprecating, maybe you, you're too self-deprecating and you don't appreciate the fact that there are nuggets of gold in what you're doing. So um, just being able to take a step back and seeing the quality of your look uh, or the quality of your film um, is something. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, being able to take notes. That's what was so great about dailies was we had a structured um, format for articulating notes for uh, a project. You know, we would watch a film and then we would analyze it and we would talk about structure and all these sorts of things. And it's not about just like, oh, I think that should have been blue instead of red. Like, you have to actually justify your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say... Sidebar, uh, Atlanta Screenwriters Group, they do a really good job of this, um, if anybody has gone to this, uh, where they read feature scripts, and then, um, you know, they'll have pe- people take different roles in it, and then at the end of it, they'll have a talk back, and they do have, like, a pretty great um, way of uh, just uh, focusing the conversation and not just having people talk all willy-nilly, but actually, like... Um, articulating opinions and they'll like now we're going to talk about structure now we're going to talk about you know um format now we're going to talk about this and so really focusing the conversation so they do a great job of it so if anybody has a feature i highly recommend being uh involved in this group and um 
submitting yourself to the firing squad because it probably won't be that bad. <laughs> yeah, I went to a few of those years ago, I guess when I first started, because um, I met uh, a few other fellow writers mm-hmm. um, in, in Atlanta. We had this discussion online that said, uh, basically what you were talking about, short, fl- short films, and they said, you know, we're not... I think the subject line was, is Atlanta one short town where people will make one little short and then, then you know, they don't try for anything else. So we all met up and we, we were coming up with um, screenplay ideas and and two two of us ended up working together to make a, a, a feature mm-hmm. and everybody else, you know, kind of disappeared or whatever. But, you know, those two people found each other. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah, that just reminds me of those years ago we... We had that same kind of discussion. The first six projects you do, no matter how much effort, time, and money you put into it, are going to be absolute shit. (laughs) And you need to get those out of the way. Like, you need to just, like, you cannot, like, just sit on your projects for years and years and years because you think this is, you know, this one really, really great idea. You Mm, gotta, like, put it into the fucking wind and not be too uh, married to anything, or too in love with anything you do, because you, you're going to get another idea. Right. You know, you need to have confidence in the fact that you're going to get another idea. And then you also need to understand that you're not a good filmmaker when you start out. Like, the, the idea of, like, we hear about, like, the Wes Andersons of the world, and, like, the Robert Rodriguez, and you think about, like, them, or even, like, the Ridley Scotts of the world, and it's like, their first movie was Alien, their first movie was Desperado, or Bottle Rockets, and right. you don't know the journey that they took before they got to that place. There's a lot of shit that they made before they got to that place. There's a lot of stuff they'll never show anybody, but they mm-hmm. had to get that shit out there, so mm-hmm. just don't buy into the fantasy that the first thing you do is going to be Bottle Rockets or Alien or anything like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we I got we got kind of stuck when we were trying to make a film called Consumed. Uh, this oh, screenplay for, that actually ended up coming out as a short film. Our friend Dustin directed and went out and helped shoot. But but um, even that short film was how many years after the feature that we tried to make? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote the original screenplay uh, winter of two thousand six. And then how many features? How many out. incarnations? Did it go through? Oh, do you think? <laughs> I mean, just the just the rewriting of the short film that we made right. of like twenty. But even like even looking at that project, it's like I thank God that we never really made that feature. And knowing now what I know, you know the 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 mistakes that we would have made um, at that time. But at the same time, we did we built a pitch bible, we built a business plan, we. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read so many books about producing and legal, like, law in the film industry and all that. And sure, we never made that film, but even now with Pepper's Place, I never could have made the pitch Bible or, you know, the press kits and all these other things if it wasn't for all the knowledge that I learned all those years ago Mm -hmm. trying to put together Consume. So it's it's all a learning process. Even if it's a failure in the end, it's still all a learning process. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, like, everything I've ever done, I've submitted to Sundance. Like, my first short film, I submitted to Sundance, thinking <laughs> I was going to get in. You know? And, like, that's the thing. It's, you gotta, you got to embrace that idea of just failing. It's a little different with features, obviously, because that, you know, requires a lot more money and effort and all that kind of shit. But, um, and, you know, if you, if you got the time, money, and effort, definitely make a feature right now. Do it and learn from it and then make it because nobody's paying attention to you right now when you make your feature. Um, and you want to get it out of the way. If you do, you know, make a great short and then you get a, a deal or something like that and you get some money to actually produce it, then people are going to pay attention to this first time director. But if you make a feature for uh, 10, 20, 60,000 dollars and it doesn't go anywhere and nobody notices it that's great because then <laughs> the next time you make a feature for um you know a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or a million dollars you'll have that knowledge and people won't know that you made a feature that sh- was shit you know <laughs> maybe you can put it on the dvd extras of the uh yeah like yeah. well, you, well you'll cut it down to 10 minutes yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you'll never show it to anyone <laughs> 
So, uh, is it, other than the fact that you're a book, is there anything that you can say about the World of Hurt anthology? Uh, yeah. So there's this uh, there's this project. Tom Tesser, who's a um, really great horror novelist, um, he has a series of shorts um, that he is getting produced to make into a basically an anthology, like your creep show, like. Um, um, some of your other anthologies, but it's all his work. Um, and I am doing a, I am slated to direct a, um, segment of this short, of this, uh, anthology feature. Um, it's called Infestation at Rails, and it is a gothic, uh, monster movie. I'm calling it Bram Stoker's Dracula Meets Alien. <laughs> um, it's about this, uh, gargoyle who is, um, hiding out in a, um, girls' school. And these two doctors who stumble upon it then have to flush it out. And it pops out of the chest. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and well, actually, <laughs> John Hurt shows up. The, the story. The story starts with uh, the, uh, the the doctor goes to a uh, to the girls' school because they there's this mysterious discovery that this um, young girl was carnally assaulted two nights before, and now she's six months pregnant. Um, and so there is this bit of a mystery as to what the fuck. Um, <laughs> and it turns out, <clears throat> spoiler. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Baby gargoyles. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is ruined now. Yeah. Uh, how did you get attached to the project? Mm, uh, my good friend, Mia Sorensen, who was a producer and editor, and um, she's kind of a vagabond. She's gone every, She's worked everywhere from mostly those television Worked everywhere from CNN to uh, to ESPN to Showtime to HBO and NBC and everything else as a producer and editor and director. Um, she was slated to uh, work on uh, to do one of the segments, and she used to live in Atlanta, which is how I met her um, because she used to also own a record label, and I produced a, a little promo for her with puppets, and uh, we just always stayed really good friends, um, and. She was kind of, you know, bouncing all over the world and didn't really have a home base. And I was, and she was like, I've always loved Atlanta and my experience there. I was like, you should come shoot your segment in Atlanta. And she was like, you're right. And so we, I was planning on producing it. And then, uh, oh, and she also was, um, her last big thing was she was worked for the Obama campaign as a producer editor for their, um, campaign videos. Um, oh. and their, specifically their YouTube stuff. So, oh, wow. um, she's slated as the unofficial Obama biographer, um, <laughs> as they've called her. Um, so. Which definitely goes on your resume when getting a horror anthology. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's the thing about, um, Tom's work is it's very, uh, a lot of it is, um, there's a certain level of commonplace creepy to it. Like her piece is about, Basically, this creepy dude who uh, goes to his this girl that he used to have a crush on in high school. He goes to her funeral because nobody else shows up to it, mm -hmm. and he's just like this voyeur creep. And his and like he gets kind of sad because like all the, his parent, her, the girl's parents are there at the funeral, and nobody else is there. And so he makes up this whole lie about him, like them being ex-lovers and this whole torrid affair. Right. And then it turns out that the parents are actually crazy, and he's a creep, and then they kill him. And <laughs> it's groping of dead bodies and all kinds of craziness. Is that a is that a period piece? Like no. It, so no. they're all over the place. As far yeah, as most the of them are are um, are uh, modern day. Okay. Um, the reason, and so basically, they uh, she introduced me. They were still getting their slates of directors for this project, and she introduced me to the producers, and I showed them my work, and. Um, they liked my work, um, particular, and then they actually approached me about this project because Tom didn't think that this particular project was uh, filmable, just because <laughs> it was so uh, it was period, it's creature heavy, it's all these sorts of things, um, and that's kind of 
minus the period thing, it's kind of what I do. And so they were like, this may be a perfect fit. So um, our film is going to utilize um, a lot of miniatures to encapsulate the landscape and things of that nature and kind of blend that world. Some film techniques that I've really, really been trying to perfect um, for years now. Um, I'm hoping that we'll actually have a budget to produce it. Um, so, yeah, that's how, kind of how I got involved. And Mia's still doing her portion of it. She probably is still going to be shooting in, in Atlanta. Um, and I'm going to be shooting my thing in Atlanta, obviously. Um, and there is another director in L.A. There's one in Vancouver. Uh, and somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. This could be next uh, VHS Mega Smash, mm-hmm. another anthology thing. When they're yeah, kind of big right now. Mm-hmm. They are definitely big right now. So, um, does it bother you that a lot of people feel that animation and puppetry and stuff is is more just for kids, because when we started doing stop motion animation, mm-hmm. people would say, you know, like we were having trying to have some of these serious stories, mm-hmm. um, and then they would they would say, well, you know, it's just for kids, and it would bother me personally, just because, you know, when the Muppets started out, it wasn't really for kids; it was a late night show. Um, Brian Henson even even has uh, it's R rated puppet kind of slams that you know you kind of see in Atlanta now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you feel about that whole debate, if there is one? Um, uh, it's, you know, it, look, it's something that I've dealt with my entire... I, I chose a weird-ass career, if you want to call it that. <laughs> um, and it's something that I, I've i never really been interested in children's television programming, um, as far as, like, actually investing my time, money, and effort into it. I, I've worked on plenty of children's programming and children's entertainment and all these things, and I enjoy working on them, but it's more so because of the performance as opposed to the actually fucking kids, you know? Like, um, so, yeah, it's always going to be a thing. I've come, kind of come to peace with it, and the only time it really becomes problematic is when you're trying to flirt with a girl. Um, <laughs> and you kind of have to, like, be, no, wait, you don't understand, come back! Well, at least it's uh, not ventriloquism. Yeah, <laughs> fuck ventriloquism. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Those are weird motherfuckers. Uh, anyway, so, <clears throat> yeah, no, but, like, everybody has a, a visual vocabulary. When you say a word, you have an image that pops up into your head. So when you say animation, you are either seeing Tiny Toons or Akira, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. And when I say puppetry, you're either seeing sock puppets or you're seeing the Dark Crystal, or somewhere in between. So um, it, you don't necessarily know what people's visual vocabulary is, but you kind of, for me... I'm interested in the things that I love and the things that I enjoy doing. And um, puppetry is a way to uh, expand the world that you are uh, of the story that you're trying to tell. You know, if, if I don't have much money and I want to tell a, a, an epic story, you know, I'm screwed. Or I do it in animation or in puppetry. You, oh, know? Yeah. you know, and uh, I think that's the the the, uh, the freedom that it gets you. So. Uh, I guess it doesn't really bother, it does bother me sometimes in specific things when it's like, oh, just the puppeteer or just like whatever. And the irony is like a lot of my friends will introduce me as a puppeteer and they have the visual vocabulary of the things that they've seen me do. And so for them, they are bragging about the fact that I'm a puppeteer, but the thing, when they introduce me as a puppeteer to their friend, they their friend always kind of has this look on their face, like, and then I have to be like, uh, then I actually have to decide if I care enough about this person to explain myself. Right. Um, how do you not think that's cool as shit? If someone, you know, like, oh, dude, this person worked on so-and-so, how do you not go, that's really cool? Because... Well, who, who, who would dismiss that? Nobody, 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 no, like, <laughs> nobody knows what Lazy Town is. Like, nobody knows what Walking on Dinosaurs is. Like, we did this shit, like, I've performed, Walking with Dinosaurs, I toured for two years and literally performed in front of a million people. Like, we mm-hmm. counted it. Like, a million people. 800 shows. And still nobody knows who, what that shit is. Um, uh, you know, uh, 50 cities and, you know, half a dozen countries. Whatever. Uh, it's back on tour now. 
Um, it's going on tour in the fall, in the summer and fall. Well, probably the closest tour. thing that people could associate it with is there was the viral video of the guy with the dinosaur that was chasing through an office, essentially. Mm, yeah. And that's like the closest thing to fame of... Well, there's a lot of those videos. There's several of them of, like, the dinosaur throwing out the first pitch at yes, various... Right. Yeah, those are all ours. Like, if you ever see an awesome-looking dinosaur that is on BuzzFeed that will change the way you look at reality, oh. um, <laughs> then that's Walking with Dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, when Molly uh, said that uh, you were working on... I think it was Magic the Gathering Musical, um, TM, Tommy Kip Productions. Uh, <laughs> that she said, you know, I think I think that's when we first started talking about you because I can't remember when you guys met. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, don't I don't remember know. time. But uh, I mean, she said, "Oh, walk with dinosaurs," and I immediately was like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, "Oh my god, we have a legitimate short film coming up." Because I mean, we met. Did we meet on congratulations? Yeah, it was okay. It, it was we, met congratulations. we met on congratulations. Oh, okay. Hmm. What uh, what what were you doing on Congratulations again? I think my technical title was art director, but that wasn't. I mean, you know, it's an indie feature, which um, <laughs> you know, I basically was partially in charge of helping the production designer coordinate people um, and other logistics within that. Um, which is not a job to be sneered at because we needed a lot of help on that film, and we wouldn't have had <coughs> any of it. If Raymond hadn't supported us with the endless trope of help, I mean, so sidebar, like that's kind of what I've been um, tasked in doing in this town is just like getting people help. Sometimes it seems like, um, and ultimately, what I've learned is uh, people want to do cool shit. Like, if your idea is cool, if you're a part of something cool. Like, you cannot underestimate the value of cool. Um, and I know it's, like, a really nebulous kind of thing, but, like, organizations, corporations spend millions of dollars on trying to figure out what's cool. And um, if you've got something that is interesting and, like, people like, man, people will flock to it. And if, it, and if you're really, really struggling on trying to make this epic uh, zombie musical, then... It may be that your idea sucks, um, <laughs> but when it's something cool, man, yeah. when you can articulate it, people flock to it. It's hard, though, as a filmmaker, or, or I don't know, maybe it's because we are genetically Jewish, but I have such guilt asking people to work for, for free. <laughs> like, there's so much guilt involved with it. Like, it's hard. I almost, yeah, I almost don't want to. I would almost rather do 10 people's jobs. Mm-hmm. Then ask somebody to come work for me for free. Not that I don't think that they would do a great job. Mm-hmm. It's just I know what people's time is worth, and it's worth so much more than that. Well, it's a combination of who you ask and the type of project that's on. You know, I'm not going to ask you to production design my mumblecore, <laughs> you know, one room drama. Well, it doesn't help that I constantly talk about how much bullshit mumblecore is. But. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, when I have something that I think that you're going to be interested in, then I'll ask you to work for free for it, you know? And I think that that's what the thing is. You have to be strategic about who you ask for the different departments. If you're just, like, and sometimes you need to just get a lot of hands, like we needed on congratulations, because... There was a house that we covered in. I say we. I wasn't there on the day. I but, was 36 you know. hours straight. We wallpapered yeah. the outside of a house with missing posters. Yeah. Like <laughs> paper posters. Like, yeah. Eight and a half yeah. by 11 right. size. It was crazy. How many? Like 30,000? Something like that? Yeah. 30,000. Like uh, this house in Alpharetta. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. On that, you just need every human body you can throw at that. You know what I mean? Um, but... If you are looking for your key people, I think that asking somebody to be involved in something cool that you are passionate about is, uh, you know, and also like favor is currency. So you can't be the dude that has never done anything on anything and just start asking people for help. You got to have like a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, of a resume or a little bit of, uh, you know, experience helping other people out. There's certain people that who have never made a short film 
But if they were to decide to direct a short film, all of us would have to work on it because oh, yeah. they've worked on all of our stuff. You know? Oh yeah, definitely. Dan Slimmons is one of them that mm-hmm. I constantly tell him why haven't you made a film? Because every person in the Atlanta community owes you right now. Right, Matt Brohammer, who's a great storyboard yeah. artist and art department person, he made his first film for XPT, Experimental Puppetry Theater, at the Center for Puppetry Arts. The Lemonade Stand. Yes, um, and he uh, and he got a lot of people who were, you know, that he wouldn't have got on industry professionals who knew their shit, who he wouldn't have got if he hadn't have worked on so many other projects, you know, for first-time filmmakers. So, you know, spent a couple of years in the trenches just doing shit work for other people and build up some uh, street cred for that. That's very true. We wouldn't have made Pepper's Place if we hadn't had the connections and the favors before that. And even since Pepper's Place, I feel like all I've done is work off the work (laughs) that people did on Pepper's Place. Uh, David Bruckner, who's one of my dearest friends, uh, and he's uh, fantastic. He's like, he's so good. He's one of the best filmmakers I've ever met. Um, he is slated to, he directed Amateur Night of VHS, and he's currently slated to direct the new Friday the 13th, among a host of other things that I can't talk about. Um, but he and I have this thing where we'll ask each other for something, and it'll be like, wait, do I owe you right now, or do you owe me? <laughs> like, we're, we're trying to keep the favorite currency in our head. Um, and it's true, it's like, you know, not to be totally, um, you know, capitalistic about the whole process, uh, because there is a certain level of, you know, friendship and, you know, just helping one out for the passion of the thing, but there is a certain level of, you know, doing this thing so you can get something else done for you. Right. Which, okay, like, going into that, um, uh, I would like for you to agree or disagree, but one of the things that it seems like is that because of how much work has come to Atlanta, thanks to things like the tax incentive and whatnot, um, you can't, as long as you're interested in working in an entry-level position in your department, that mm-hmm. is like a key part of it, is as long as you're interested in just coming in as a grip or electric or a camera utility or a set dresser, which are the entry levels of all of those departments, um, you can essentially join the union and walk into work right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of feels like there's not as much value in... The experiences, like in the experience of working for free on an indie film, be or to a lot mm-hmm. of people, like it's it's almost like with all these influx of people with these skills or people that want these skills, it doesn't seem to be matching in the indie film community. This influx of people to work on these free things and there's any things and whatnot. Um, yeah, um, I think it ultimately has to do with the fact that. Um, if you want to direct something, you're still going to have to do the thing. It depends on what you want to do sure. in the industry. If all you've ever wanted to do in the industry is just make a living wage, which I'm, and I'm not saying that like as a, um, I'm not poo-pooing on that concept. I think that is completely legitimate and I don't have any sort of hierarchy for like some sort of bullshit concept of a true artist or any sort of thing like that. Like mm-hmm. people got to eat, you got to work, you know, film I- industry is just as good as, any other industry, right. you know. And the entry level, like working as a set dresser, you know, as long as you work two thirds of the year, you're going to make eighty grand and have pension and welfare. Yeah. Like, who can sneeze at that? Yeah, like that. And if you weren't doing that, you'd be working at Starbucks or you'd be working at a design firm or doing any other host of jobs that is taking you away from the uh, film industry. Ultimately, the people that want to make movies are going to make movies. And that is always, and, and the reality is you may not be able to hire the key grip that you hired two years ago because now they're working on Hunger Games 75. Um, <laughs> but that key grip may have only been interested in being a key grip. And that's fine for them. More power to them. Um, I think that it's kind of, I, I, I'm not a nostalgic for any reason. Like, I think that the people who we came up with who were making dailies, a lot of them were videographers. A lot of them were just enthusiasts or hobbyists or what have you. They still had their 9 to 5. They still had a job that they had to take off to make movies for. Half of us weren't working in the film industry. And those who were, were doing, were certainly not directing in the film industry. Or at least directing anything notable. 
So uh, there was still we were still trying to achieve this thing. Um, so uh, and and we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. You know, the key someone who called themselves a production designer. My production designer on my first film um, was somebody who didn't know what that word meant. I didn't know what that right. word meant. You know what I mean? So, and five years later, you know, they've gotten a heck of a lot better at everything they do. Um, but we were all just figuring it out. So, and that's the thing. I'm like, I'm not going to ask that person, you know, it said five years later. It's more like ten years later. Ten years later to be my production designer again and ask them and expect that they're going to be at the same level. They may have moved on to something else. So, um, you're not going to work with everybody you worked with five years ago. That's just impossible. And if you're looking for a scapegoat, you can blame the film industry, but ultimately it's just people's work. Um, and, and at the end of the day, People who work on an entry-level set dressing, uh, you know, whatever kind of gripping or electrician, the ones who are ambitious, they want to make things, now they actually have money to make those things. And now they have their freelancers, so they don't have to quit their job. They can just decide not to work and take a couple of months to make their thing, right. as opposed to somebody who was a graphic designer for a firm and had to decide, oh, I'm going to use my vacation days to make this feature and i got to save it all up. It's like, no, I worked for eight months, now I'm going to say, fuck it, I'm going to go to Costa Rica for a couple months and then come back and make a short film. <laughs> like, that's the thing you can do. So I think it's ultimately, and, and, you know, all the industry terms and the uh, standardizations for equipment and all of these things. So you, when you get on set, it's not just a bunch of kids dicking around. It's professionals who know how to be efficient in their machine. So There is definitely something for a well-run set. Definitely. That you can't deny because it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. I mean, the... The people, my first AD on my first short film asked me, I asked him, hey, he was in uh, my, my class, uh, French New Wave, um, and I asked him to be my AD. And uh, he was like, yeah, man, I'm totally down. What does an AD do? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, our set was not, you know, it was just not an efficient set. And that had to do with the fact that there was a lack of infrastructure within this town. Now, if I ask a PA or uh, to be my AD, he knows exactly what that means. Sure. Mm-hmm. And that PA is going to fucking be a baller. Or at least because he wants to be an AD. You right. know what I mean? Um, so, indies are all about working up. You want to do the thing that you is above your scale right now. Because some at some point, as a freelancer, somebody's going to be like, oh, uh, my lead man just quit. You want to be my lead man? And... <laughs> If you've done that on a short or an indie, or my DP just quit, or whatever, if you've done that on a short or indie, you're going to have the confidence to do that as opposed to if you've never done any of that before. So Absolutely. Or you're at least going to know what your limitations are sure. and the right questions to ask for the things to say no to. Yeah, because everybody thinks they can do their boss's job. You know? Sure, <laughs> definitely. So I kind of wish I had more skills than writing. I mean, I'm obviously a master writer guy. <laughs> but I I really you know I come and help out on sets and stuff and help build stuff but you know they have to tell me what to do because I'm just I just don't know how to do anything else. I think that that's a um, misnomer I, uh, though like that people know what to do right uh, like, oh you're, yeah. You're, I mean yeah okay like nobody really <laughs> knows what to do and because yeah. and like I, I think that's one thing as a um on Pepper's Place, I was the uh, puppet captain, and I had, you know, I cast a lot of the puppeteers, and, you know, a lot of them are puppeteers, but haven't had a lot of film sets. Some have more film set experience than others, and they kept asking me, I was like, oh, what's next? What's happening next? And, like, and I'm like, you don't understand the way film works. Sometimes we don't know all the questions that right. you're asking. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, where's the camera going to be? What, what is that? What's the next shot on the angle? And all? I was like... We're figuring this stuff out because it's blocking and all these sorts of things. So there is this misnomer that since you don't know what's happening, that everybody else does. Right. Yeah. Um, Which is true. 
Plus, any good person that's built, any good manager that's building a team is going to build a team of people with a variance of skills, as opposed to a team that all have one kind of really great skill. Right. Because you you have a stronger team that way. Yeah. Totes. But um, speaking so speaking of PAs, I always like to tell people, like, don't ever ever PA unless two things: one, you don't know what department you want to go into. Or you want to go into production because you can get tons of experience in your department doing that job on indies and whatnot without going and working as a PA because that $150 million film that you're working on doing that lockup where you never see a soul like all day except when you get somebody bring to you your food isn't training you to work in the art department or grip or electric. Um, so I always, I always tell people don't. Don't PA. Go work on indie things. Figure out what your department is. Mm-hmm. Figure out what the departments do. And then start working in that department. Unless you can PA, like, as close to set as possible. Mm-hmm. If you can be an on-set guy in any department, then you're going to learn something. But, like, that's true of set dressers. Most um, set dressing art department jobs are in set deck. And it's what we call a swing gang, which are those who are before and after camera. People who are setting up the set and tearing down the set. And I know people that have worked for, and I worked with a set deck guy on a um, project and it was like his, it was an indie feature and uh, he had been swing gang for like eight years and he was on set, first time on set. And he asked me what an AD did. <laughs> um, and it's just because, and it's not like he's stupid, it's just like he never been around rolls and cuts. Right. Um, and if you want to make movies, if you want to be the guy, like, you got to get as close to the action as possible. Yeah. Um, Let's well, so. even um, goes the opposite direction in the sense that, you know, working swing gang, like a perfect example would be The Walking Dead, where a season was like 10 months. And I ha- met people later, like, I worked on The Walking Dead. You didn't work on The Walking Dead. It's like, I swear to God I did. <laughs> I was just there before and after. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, you know... Uh, to each his own, tomato, tomato, but you gotta, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny, actually, speaking of experiences and whatnot, um, one of the most, as being a direct, in, in wanting to make Magic the Guy in the Musical and then Pepper's Place and being a writer slash director and whatnot and evolution of that, I did not have a ton of experience before trying to do it and whatnot, but one of the single most valuable experiences that I had to being a director was working as the on-set dresser for season two of Necessary Roughness. Because as the on-set dresser, you're there on set. It even works to your advantage that you need to hang out near Video Village so that you're available when they want to change things on set. So with the entire season of Necessary Roughness, every single episode they have a different director. So I got to watch... <coughs> 12 different directors, how they approached storyboards, how they approached talking to actors, how they communicated with the AD on set. I got, I mean, that's almost like invaluable of getting like a week and a half of a different director and getting to observe them. And I was working as the on-set dresser. And it's, like I said, it's one of the most valuable experiences to my career as far as a director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think anytime, like I said, if you can get, even if you're like a boom op or whatever, like, just getting as close as you can to the action, as close as you can to the monitor, um, I think is the most valuable uh, thing you can have in the film industry if you are working, you know, if you want to be a director. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it's helped me as a screenwriter, too, just, you know, even being on just Pepper's Place and just seeing, you know, day-to-day yeah. stuff and shot-by-shot stuff and seeing how everything operates and realizing what can be done, what can't be done at certain mm-hmm. time spans and blah, blah, blah. You also got to do an on-set rewrite? I did. That was very exciting. It was my first day, and and Molly said, oh, you can you can wait till a later date. I was like, no, I'm going to do it right now, because I just walked on set. I was like, yes, useful. So, yeah, I think that's, um, we're yeah. getting close to time. Is there anything else that you want to close with? Uh, some amazing words for future filmmakers of Atlanta. Uh, don't fuck it up. Uh, no. <laughs> I think that, you know, you gotta just make stuff. Um, another great podcast, which I highly recommend, is, um, it used to be called Creative Screenwriter Magazine. Now it's called The Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and it is, that. uh, basically 
kind of like inside the actor studio, except for screenwriters, where Jeff Goldsmith is a, a great um, interviewer, and he just like talks to people from everything from, you know, uh, Rushmore to uh, Transformers Three. You know, he'll just interview the screenwriters and ask them questions about their process and about their writing habits and how they get over writer's block and. Like, uh, actually, there's a great one with Dan, Dave, and Jacob from The Signal that he did, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, so, highly recommend it. Uh, the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. And they have a online magazine, too. So, uh, yeah, and just, you know, go make some stuff. Go make some stuff, and then also get a website. Like, do the nuts and bolts of, like, promoting yourself. And because, like I said, uh, cool stuff... Uh, begat cool stuff, you know? So, you know. Right. And also, make sure to go to DJ Ray Ray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I DJ sometimes, but that's weird. Um, <laughs> NinjaPuppetProductions.com is my website, so you can see more of what we do. Um, and use Twitter, and do you use Twitter? I know you use Instagram. I do use Instagram. Uh, the Ninja Puppet, um, is my handle. And then, um, uh, Ninja Puppet Productions is on Facebook. We do a lot of posts, so you can like us and then see the stuff we're building. Um, and, yeah. yeah, go look at the things for the Georgia Aquarium because they're amazing. Mm-hmm. That are up right now. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thanks a lot. Uh, you can find us at ATL Film Chat on Twitter. You can find me, Chuck, at F O X I N C Fox Inc on Twitter. And Molly, you can find at Darth underscore Molly. And you can find everything that we've done in the Atlanta Film Chat at zombiecatproductions.com. All right, thanks for listening. Yay. That was great, Brandon. Oh, thanks. Don't thank me. Thank the